All right, welcome to the Boss Mama Jamma podcast. This week's episode is going to be a little different than how I've done episodes in the past. I typically interview a guest where we get deep into different topics and they provide guidance and advice on how to approach that topic in the professional world or in your life as a mom. This episode, I'm going to get a little bit more personal. And so is my guest. And she has actually given me so much courage to do this episode. And we're going to cry and we're going to be mad and it's going to be emotional. And I hope that this resonates with the listeners. This episode is actually about miscarriages. And personally, I have now suffered two miscarriages and it has been very, very trying. One aspect of this that's been really hard for me is realizing how limited women are supported through this process professionally and in the medical world. There's been a lot of changes in healthcare and obviously a lot of changes within our reproductive rights in the U.S. And I don't think people fully understand how that impacts women in other aspects of pregnancy and trying to conceive. So on the podcast today, I have Amanda Allen. She is a senior counsel and director at The Lawyering Project. Amanda oversees the organization's access and innovation program, which focuses on expanding access to medication abortion through telehealth and other innovative technologies. Amanda has spent her legal career advocating for meaningful access to reproductive health services. Before joining The Lawyering Project, she had held several positions at the Center for Reproductive Rights, including overseeing the center's state and local policy and advocacy initiatives. She also held positions with the National Institute for Reproductive Health, the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum as a Georgetown Law and Public Policy Fellow, and If, When, How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. Amanda received a JD from SUNY School of Law and a BA from the University of Minnesota. Amanda's writing on the intersection between miscarriage, postpartum health, and abortion access have appeared in the New York Times and Elle magazine. Amanda, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. And um, again, I'm just so, so sorry for your losses. Thank you. And I'm so sorry for yours as well. I know that you also went through this during the pandemic, which makes it extra, I think, isolating and a very isolating process. Yeah, it's it's weird to look back on it because it almost feels like a dream, um, or really a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we were in the, you know, really in the throes of the pandemic where you couldn't hug a friend, you couldn't, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we couldn't have a sitter come over for a couple of hours. So my partner could hold my hand while I was actually going through labor contractions and miscarrying in our bathroom. And so there's just so much loneliness that went along with it. And and I will say too, like my community, I was in California at the time, my community out there really, really came, came together in creative ways, you know, given, given COVID people dropped off dinner Mm -hmm. and we just talked through their car windows from 10, 20 feet away. People dropped off care packages and um, it was, it was really lovely to see how people managed to to kind of break through all of the fear and all the anxiety around getting sick um, right. to, to try to support me and, and my family. Yeah. I mean, cause that was the thing that people 
forgot about COVID is that life still happened. You know, shit still happened. People still had highs and lows. And that's really great to hear that your friends and family were able to do what they could you know, to try to reach out to you and and provide you guys some comfort. I was in a similar situation this past December because of course, like as every, there was a little spike in COVID. And when we were going through everything with our first miscarriage right around Christmas time, uh, we also got COVID. So it was Christmas COVID and miscarriage all together. Um, But I'd have to say similarly, like family and friends, they did some really amazing gestures that really helped when we were feeling really isolated. Um, I will say probably the worst aspect of COVID as it related to my miscarriage was not, um, you know, the rules were very strict about bringing um, a support person into your ultrasound. And so it was, and I just had, didn't even cross my mind to have someone else drive me, to have my partner drive me. And so not only was he not there in the room with me, but I had to drive myself home after getting that news. And I was probably not in any condition to drive. No, no, I'm so sorry. I, similar situation. I went without my husband back in December, not even thinking really. I think I walking into the doctor's office, I think I had this one moment of like, it crossed my mind where I was like, what if something is wrong? And I think it was just like, that's that innate knowing sometimes that women have mm-hmm. that you just kind of know that the pregnancy is not right. And I think part of it was like, I didn't have any morning sickness that was feeling off. And I walked in and he wasn't there and I, with me. And then obviously you, you hear the thing you never want to hear, which was, I'm sorry, but I can't find a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And I similarly, I like fell apart and like, I had taken the train into the city and I was just crying my eyes out. And I was like, I am not in any, I don't want to get on a train in front of a million strangers. Um, so I got in a car with one stranger and called an Uber and took a ride home. And I think I was just crying the whole way, not really saying anything. Um, and you know, it's, that's where the isolation I think really began um, in the whole process, but it, I, I, you know, having you on the podcast, I I have to say, I found your article and I don't know if a friend sent it to me, but I remember reading your article in L magazine, the one titled, I thought I knew everything about miscarriages until I had one myself. Um, and you wrote that in January of 2021. So that was, was that like a, a couple months after your experience? Yeah, I think I wrote most of it sort of in one sitting month or so after um, the loss because I found out in September of 2020. And then it took, you know, it took a while to, to go to print. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was uh, something that I, I mostly wrote when when everything was still really raw and fresh. Yeah. And there was a lot of things that you said in the article that really stood out to me. Um, and really just resonated with me because I felt like, and I don't think it was just because of it being Christmas or being isolated, but like, there were a lot of moments where I felt like this was something I couldn't tell people. This was something I couldn't open up about. And I felt like this weird, not really shame, but just like this expectation of like, just keep it to yourself. Like nobody wants to hear 
right? Like you don't burden, yeah, don't yeah. burden anyone with this information. Right. Why is that? Why do we, as a culture, feel like this is a loss that we can't talk about? I think it just all goes back to stigma around all things related to reproductive health, whether you grew up in a family where you couldn't talk about birth control or sex, um, whether it's the pressure for women to always be perfect. And if you had a miscarriage, it was somehow something you did, which we of course know is not true. There's stigma around just talking about our bodies and how these things work. And even around just telling the truth about how these things work. Um, Mm -hmm. I wrote in that piece about how shocked I was that the process wasn't just, you know, as my OB said, it's going to feel like a heavy period, you know, like I really bold face lie. <laughs> it, it, yeah. And it's like, why, you know, we need to start telling the truth about these things. Like we can handle the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's and it's sure I'm sure for some people, it really does just feel like that, but really being honest with people about the range of experiences that you might have mm-hmm. at seven, eight, nine, 10, whatever weeks you're talking about. I, you know, I, I think I wrote in the piece or maybe it got cut, but one of my good friends who had a loss around the same time as I did, um, just in terms of how far along she was, told me, you know, I was like, okay, I haven't started bleeding yet. Like, tell me what to expect. And she said, it was kind of like a mini labor. And I was like, that's not what any of my providers have prepared me for. And then I was making breakfast for my, for my partner and then four-year-old. And all of a sudden the contractions came on and I said, oh, it's happening. And, you know, having gone through labor, you know, having birthed a child previously, like, you know what that feels like. And it wasn't anything close to to having my child, but the the sensations were the same and Mm -hmm. just sort of the process was the same and just made me really mad that we're not, we're not telling people the truth about this. I think that is, that sort of goes back to the, um, the culture around silence and stigma around Mm -hmm. these things. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think like you also put one thing in your article that it really, really resonated with me because like I I said, when we had connected before, you know, it does feel like afterwards you're in this, like you said, it's a nightmare, but it feels like it's almost like this out of body experience where you're like, is this really happening to me? Did this really happen to me? You know, kind of a feeling. And for about a month you're in this, for me, I felt like I was in this like just dark place. Um, my mind was clouded. I just couldn't, I couldn't relate to reality almost. It felt like, and you had wrote, you know, in, in, in one section of the article that you felt like you had to tell people, like, I'm in the middle of a miscarriage right now. Like, can you just, remember you wrote, I actually found the quote right here. You just kept saying, I'm in the middle of a miscarriage. I'm in the middle of a miscarriage for three full weeks. That phrase kept ringing in my ears. Sorry, I can't join that call. Sorry, I can't return your email. Sorry, I can't stop and talk. Sorry, I can't finish a sentence. Sorry, I can't stop crying. I'm in the middle of a miscarriage. I wanted to tell everyone, clients, colleagues, neighbors, daycare parents. And I think like that, I was like really feeling that same experience where you wanted to tell people like, just, I can't even function like a normal person. Like I, you're getting a third of, the Kate that you normally would. Um, and the hardest part for me, and you said you also had a child. I had a Mm two-year-old. I still had to show up for my two-year-old. This was around the holidays. I, you know, it was 
two and a half. He's going through Christmas. He knows what's going on when it's Christmas. You know, you had to show up and bring the magic of Christmas, like my husband and I on our own because we had COVID. And that was so hard. It took everything in me just to, to be there for him. So everything else I felt like in my life suffered even more. Um, so I just, I think that that was such an important part of that article for you to have written just to let people know emotionally and mentally what women are going through when having a miscarriage, because it does feel like this isolating loss. And I think also one thing that shocked me about that experience was the idea of being in the middle of something that to me Mm -hmm. prior to the experience was a moment in time. You know, I did not have any idea how long it was going to take for um, everything to, to essentially end. And of course, when, when it's over, like when you know, the pregnancy is over, you just want the whole thing to be over as fast as possible, but it was an excruciating three weeks. And that's why I really felt like there was no sort of beginning or end to it. I was just constantly in this middle waiting for the next thing to happen, waiting for the next thing to happen. And it was so hard to show up for all the other aspects of my life, work, my four-year-old, my partner, you know, all of those things, because I was like, I need this to end. I need this. I need some closure to this. And also not just emotionally, of course, closure didn't come, uh, probably never will come, but physically, you know, I was just constantly like going back in for, I had two follow-up ultrasounds that I had to get, that I had to go to hospitals for. Mm -hmm. Um, I had essentially an unmedicated DNC to remove tissue that, um, that was still there. These are not things that you can just work into your work day. No, not at all. And I think that's also, there's a, the misconception. I don't know if it's like Hollywood, you know, the only times that you really like maybe understand what happens in a miscarriage. It's always these like single scenes in a movie where a woman's Mm -hmm. just like uncomfortable in the bathroom and oh, there's blood and then it's over. It's like, that is not how it goes. Yeah. Because yes, it could surprise you, but most likely you're going to know about it before you show physical signs and you're going to need medical intervention. So you also had medical intervention as well. Yeah. So my providers, for whatever reason, were very keen on not using medications to, to speed up the process. And, and I don't really, to this day, understand why, but it turned out that after, you know, that moment that I described of, of essentially the mini labor, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, st- I kept bleeding. I was bleeding way too much for about a week. And mm-hmm. that usually happens when there's retained tissue. Um, right. And so I went in and then after that, essentially unmedicated DNC to remove that tissue, then that's when the, it was sort of like a faucet <laughs> turned off. And it, but I yeah. knew something was wrong. Right. I knew something was wrong and it took a while to sort of be taken seriously about that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, the first time around had a DNC because I think I was far enough along where my doctor didn't want to, to have it try to happen naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, but unfortunately the timing of when I could get into the, the hospital, it had already started the day before. So I was like a day late. Um, and I basically still went through it at home, but my doctor felt it was necessary to make sure that everything was, was, uh, okay. Everything was cleared and, um, you know, the, the bleeding was under control, which she said it was, you know, she said it was a lot of, it was very heavy bleeding. Um, so she was actually really happy that we did the DNC to, to cauterize 
um, what could have been something more serious for my health, but it did for my first miscarriage can put an end to it kind of quickly on the physical side of things. Right. But I was so unprepared for what I did end up going through physically at home that emotionally it was, it was even like harder for me to kind of get through. And it, it took a long time, but I would say one thing that was, that has been really helpful both times for me is, um, having a manager who actually went through multiple miscarriages before having her child. Um, so I was able to call her basically right away and say, Hey, I just got some bad news. I'm going to have to go through this. And she was, she's been so supportive of giving me time off and saying, you know, let's take this slow. When you come back to work, let's go at your pace. You might think you're ready, but if you're not, that's okay. And that did happen to me. I went back to work, um, a week or so later in January and, I felt the worst anxiety I've ever felt in my life. And I couldn't get anything done. I could barely write an email. I was like, just so scatterbrained and anxious. And I told her, I was like, I don't think I'm in the right mental space to be at work. And so she actually helped give me a couple of days off. But after that happened, I posted something on um, the Boss Man and Jamma Instagram about my experience and about just the support that I was getting at work from my managers. Um, but then I had also at the same time reached out to HR and said, I, this is what I've gone through. What kind of time off do I log? Like, what am I allotted? Mm-hmm. Um, she was also very kind and supportive and said, you know, I'm, we're very sorry that you're going through this. Here's all the different, basically all the different PTO that you're given as an employee at this company take whatever you feel is right. And so I was like, uh, I don't bereavement days. Like, I don't know, you know, it was like, so strange that there was, there was obviously no playbook for HR in this instance. Um, and when I posted crazy because we know that 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage, like it is a very, very common experience. Exactly. And that's known pregnancies too. So it's like, you could go through this not even knowing that you're pregnant and then you find out it's so it's so common. And when I posted about it on Instagram, just the stories and replies I was getting back from women were so upsetting. It would, you know, they took one day off to go to the hospital and then went right back to work or one day off at home when they were going through the actual laboring pains of a miscarriage and then went right back to work or they actually, you know, you read articles about like performers, like artists and stuff. I don't know if it was Lily Allen. It was, yeah. Yeah. As she was performing it, it's, it just sounds so inhumane. Yeah. I mean that I remember reading that, that headline too, and, and was just aghast thinking about putting me literally on stage during that experience. It would have been, you know, just, yeah. Inhumane is, is the right word. Um, in, in my story, um, I, I think because of my line of work, I felt very comfortable sharing what was going on. So I, I remember this, like it was yesterday. Um, I found out that the pregnancy was not going to, to work out on a Monday and I had a brief to file the next day that was, that I was the lead on. And so immediately, you know, I go to, how do I get this, this brief on file? Like, there's no way I can't just go back to my computer and like finish it. 
And um, immediately, without even really thinking twice about it, I wrote my manager, who's also working on this case with me, and was like, I just found out I had a miscarriage. There's no way I can finish this brief. Like, here's where, here's where everything stands. Like, can you do it for me? And she wrote back right away and was, you know, like, of course, I'm so sorry. Let us know what we can do. But I can't imagine. And I work in such a, you know, unique sort of niche field. There's so many people who don't have that option. Um, Don't, you know, feel either safe to share with their, um, with their manager or worry about their job security, worrying about bills, Mm -hmm. worrying about like, will this be covered? Will I have to take unpaid time off? Like, those are all questions that I just didn't even think about. And that's a huge, huge source of privilege for me. And then, you know what, the other thing I I remember very clearly was um, the next day, knowing that, you know, it's going to be weird that like Amanda is just missing, especially because I had this, this filing and that's a multi-person effort. And so just to like disappear would have been very, um, would have just been, you know, very strange. Um, and we were a pretty small team at the time. And so I also, you know, just didn't really think twice about posting a message to Slack, a channel that everyone, everyone reads and just saying, Hey, everyone, this is what's happening. Um, I'm not going to be very much use at work. I'm not sure when I'll be back. Um, but essentially like, you know, the next three weeks, I was essentially on medical leave. Um, you know, I popped in and out of things here and there, but especially calls, like any Zoom calls, I was like, I'm not your girl for this right now. Yeah. Yeah. So did you actually, did you have to take a official medical leave? I didn't take an official medical leave, I think, because I had enough sick time. Um, and, uh, and I think also, I'm not sure if I ended up using it, but I think we have, we later clarified that our bereavement policy covers situations like this. Um, and I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, it is medical, right. Mm -hmm. And medical leave should cover it if you don't have that, but, but it is, it is grief. You know, it's the same way that you, you know, wouldn't expect someone to, show up at work the day after a relative died. And they're very different, mm-hmm. of course. And, and it's, I'm not trying to compare them, but, um, but it's the same idea. It's the same concept. Like mm-hmm. how can you be expected to show up, which sort of implies that everything's fine when everything mm-hmm. is very much not fine. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like, you feel the need to compare this loss. And I think it's just because it's not something that everybody goes through. You feel the need to compare it a lot to try to help people understand, but it's really like nothing you're ever going to experience unless you do experience it. What was interesting, I think for my husband and I, just kind of anecdotally is we, we lost a friend um, very unexpectedly in early February. He was actually somebody who introduced my husband and I, um, Mm, one of our our really good friends. Um, Thank you. And the difference, and it was so close together, the difference in how people respond around that loss and just the way that you kind of process it was, it was such a stark contrast for me. That was like almost like a really interesting learning process in loss. Um, as I was going through, I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is communal. You know, you lose a friend, you lose somebody who's in their forties, you know, who have had a, who's had a life. It's a communal loss. When it's a miscarriage, it can feel very, very personal. It's, you know, for, um, I, I would say like my family was very much in support and I, I would say like feeling it with me, but 
you know, they were also in their minds expecting this baby to come into the world. So, you know, if, if you're not in that understanding, or if you haven't gone through it, which my mother has, and my sister-in-law and my brother have, so it's all, you know, I think an experience that you have to almost live in some capacity to really understand. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, there's sort of two, two things that are unique about, I think, pregnancy loss and grief. One is that, um, unlike losing a friend or a family member, um, who you have memories with and you have, um, you know, you've shared, you've shared part of your life with losing a pregnancy is the loss of potential. It's the loss of possibility. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to like that, that in, in and of itself is, is, is a source of grief. It's, mm-hmm. it's so, it's so all encompassing, you know, right. Like you'll never get to meet that baby. Exactly. Um, so sorry. and it's a promise. It's a yeah. promise and you have hope and, you know, there's always going to be dates Yep. that you're going to say, Hey, this was the day that my baby was due every April 24th. Yeah. And the other part of it is that I think is unique is that I don't know if you experienced this, but I felt like I had let my, my family down, you know, yeah. like people were excited about this, you know, it's not, um, it's not just something that if, especially if you've been sharing the news with others, it's not something that it's just your loss, you know, yeah. it's sort of like the loss of expectation for everyone that you've shared with. Exactly. Yeah. We share it. We were very tight with ours and, um, we shared it with a, one of our friends, one couple that was visiting because I was like, well, you're visiting us and it's right around Christmas and Hanukkah right, and, and I'm not going to be drinking. <laughs> right. So guess what's happening? And they were so excited and they were, um, we were actually, I, I was being the most about this pregnancy. And I was like, I want to do a gender reveal this time around. And they live in Pennsylvania. And I was like, let's do a firework gender reveal. <laughs> and we had planned a weekend um, in the spring that we were going to do it. And so now it's like, okay, mark that off the calendar. Um, yeah. And it's wild it's, because I was so, so, so open, um, you know, basically from the positive pregnancy test, I was telling people because miscarriage for me was always something that like I knew happened, but I never thought would happen to me. And so it was such a shock for it to happen to me, which is so crazy to think about, you know, in in retrospect, like, of course it could happen to me. Um, and, um, and so that like shock element of it, um, was, was very much there. And then, and then like when I got pregnant again with now what it, you know, who is my second child, um, despite being so, so vocal about not only that second pregnancy, but the loss and writing articles and, mm-hmm. you know, basically telling anyone who will listen, yeah. um, I didn't tell a single soul except for my partner and my healthcare providers until I was out of the first trimester. I just, yeah. there was no way I was going to risk having to untell people again, um, yeah. as a, you know, like, like that was also part of the burden, right. Was mm-hmm. going and untelling people. Right. Um, and I was like, I'm yeah. not doing that again, not to myself and not to anyone else. Yeah, I know. 
we felt that way the second time around too. And, you know, my husband and I were even like, you know, this feels different. This is great, you know? And, but I was still like, let's not, we should still wait until we're out of the, the woods, you know? And I still now, like my brother and sister-in-law went through a miscarriage um, and they told my, my immediate family, my parents, myself and my husband. um, And I don't know how many other people, to be honest, that they told, but I remember them telling me and knowing that they were like six to eight weeks, like it was very early and just being nervous for them. Um, And then finding out that they miscarried. And I just felt so awful about, like you said, the, the then untelling that they had to do. Um, but it's also, I think there's, there's some solace in the support, you know, it's like, you want to tell people the good news, but you also want them to know in case there's bad news because you want that support. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that was, that was my brother and sister-in-law's kind of mentality towards it, which I totally respect after going through it twice. Um, but I think it was the second time I was like, you know what? I still don't want to give everybody this heartbreak. I'm still, if in case something goes wrong and I was, unfortunately I was correct. It did go wrong again. Um, you know, it was earlier this time. So it wasn't something that we had to keep a secret for very long. Um, and I would also say this, this time around for me, I experienced it completely different because there was no DNC involved. And this is where I'd love just to get some of your professional Hmm. opinions on, um, kind of the, the medical side of things, because after everything in the news around abortion bans and how this is now, um, I I'm always going to butcher the the medication name. So if you want to jump in and say it, please do. Yes. Thank you. I can't, I still can't. Um, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, I know it was that that's been a a pretty widespread ban and that happened in very close to when I, I lost my second pregnancy and I did need to take mesoprestone. Um, what, what I, I just, it makes me so irate to think that women who are going through this, cause like you, I was waiting and waiting and waiting for nature to take its course. And it just mm-hmm. wasn't. Sometimes it doesn't. And yeah. And so, you know, and that it's so torturous because you, you think, well, maybe the doctor was wrong. Maybe I didn't lose this pregnancy. Maybe right. everything's fine. You know, and, and then you, have- you go through it again. It's like going through it again every time. Exactly. And then finally they say, no, it, you know, it, this is the outcome. This pregnancy is not viable for whatever reason, your body has not started the process of miscarriage. So we're gonna, you know, you have to take medication to help you along. What about these women who cannot have medical assistance? Yeah, I think you're, you're right to have, you know, to be outraged. Um, it is, it is absolutely inhumane what is happening right now with access to abortion care and the implications that abortion bans and this attempt to take mifepristone completely off the market mm-hmm. has on on pregnant people, including people who need need the, these medications for miscarriage management. It is the gold standard for miscarriage management as well as abortion care. And the, the, 
the the procedures, the 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 processes, they are the exact same. Right. Um, there is really medically no difference between an abortion and a miscarriage. And so what we're seeing happening is that everyone across the spectrum of pregnancy, whether someone wants to end a pregnancy or lost a pregnancy that they very, very much wanted, everyone is getting swept in to what is happening right now because we have lost the constitutional right to abortion. And, and just with the, I think the, the, the lawsuit that you had referenced um, out of Texas, mm-hmm. um, that is an attempt to take that first drug that you took and you needed to take completely off the market for everyone. Not just for, you know, the the idea, of course, is that we're just going to target abortion because that is somehow, um, you know, a moral failing of of the people who who need that that care. Um, it is it is going after everyone. And I think one of the things I tried to make clear in that first L article was that I hated that I felt like I was being treated differently, better than someone mm-hmm. who needed to end a pregnancy. Um, You know, most of these abortion bans do have exceptions that are very, um, very poorly written and very difficult for a doctor to sort of understand what's allowed. But they do have these exceptions for pregnancies that aren't viable. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the climate that we're seeing where like women are getting arrested, providers are under constant threat, um, both of their own physical safety and their livelihoods and their, their medical licenses. It is not a surprise that, especially in those states that have banned abortions, even for miscarriage management, you're mm-hmm. going to see some reluctance to, to prescribe those drugs, right? right. Um, and, and it's also, there are so few providers that actually have that expertise in those states that it's no surprise that people are, going, are leaving, leaving their states for care. I feel like almost every morning mm-hmm. I, I look at the news and there's another story of a person denied care and traveling hundreds of miles for uh, a pregnancy that was never going to be viable and Ugh. for a procedure that they uh, they deeply, deeply wanted for their own closure and for their own health. And mm. these bans are forcing women to wait in their cars, wait until they're at the death store, waiting until they're near sepsis. Um, because Which could have happened to you, right? Yeah. Had you not and, gotten and you, the... And and me, yes. Yeah. Pregnancy is it's a wonderful thing and it's a magical thing for for some of us, uh, myself mm-hmm. included. But it is dangerous. It is a very dangerous condition, and things happen in pregnancy very quickly. Um, very quickly, things can go wrong. And I've been doing this work for fifteen years, and that you know, I had that knowledge going into my pregnancies, but. Not everyone does because, right, the common wisdom, the cultural understanding is that pregnancy is easy and everyone should welcome it and babies are fun. Right. Which we all know, they're a lot of work. They're wonderful. They're a lot of work. It's going to change your life. And the most important thing is that it's wanted. Yeah. Nothing, absolutely nothing in this world has made me more sure and sure in my convictions that everyone should be able to make these decisions themselves than my own pregnancies and including my pregnancy loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I was for the the two two babies I ended up having so sick, so just absolutely miserable. And every day that morning sickness got worse and worse, right? Mm-hmm. I thought, imagine going to an abortion provider 
saying, I need, uh, I need an abortion and I'm so sick. I'm not able to go to work. And then they're saying, well, yeah, our state requires you to wait 72 hours before hearing a lecture from me and actually getting that abortion. Like I thought about that throughout my first pregnancy when we still had Roe. Um, and now I think about it in terms of, you know, it's not just a waiting period, it's a total ban. And can you, can you raise the thousand dollars it will take to travel hundreds of miles to get care? Right. And, and that's another thing is the cost. I, I was shocked by that. And I have health insurance. I, I'm, you know, a full-time employee, I have decent health insurance. I still had to pay about 40% of my DNC, which is about the same cost as labor. I mean, I was shocked by the bill and, um, not prepared. Is that also part of, part of what's going on from a a constitutional standpoint? Is, is there less coverage with our medical providers because of what's going on? Or is that just a, a tragic parallel? I think this has always been going on um, mm-hmm. because, you know, the the Affordable Care Act was, you know, was definitely supposed to fill in some of these gaps, but there still are gaps. Um, I didn't have um, I didn't have the same sticker shock as you, I don't think, but going to get ultrasounds at, at hospitals twice mm-hmm. um, that that was also I was like, how is this not covered? You know, yeah. how is this just not like all of this should be covered every single decision and aspect of pregnancy and childbirth should be covered. And it should not be something that somebody is, is worrying about. Like, am I going to be able to afford this copay or this bill? Mm -hmm. Um, I was reading a story about a woman, I I believe in Missouri who could not get anyone to, to take care of her. She had a, um, she had a pregnancy with a fatal fetal abnormality. There was no way, um, that, 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 that pregnancy was going to be viable and she could not find anyone to care for her. Um, and then I think she ended up going to Illinois and was worried the whole time. How am I going to pay for this? Like the later in pregnancy, the more expensive mm-hmm. all, you know, really any care is, but, but in this case, abortion care, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that people are, you know, sort of making these mental calculations, like can I still make my mortgage payment and get this care that I need to save my life and yeah. protect my ability to have children in the future? Like mm-hmm. that is absolutely obscene. It is. It doesn't feel like decisions that we should be making or have or be being forced to make in 2023. No, no, nobody should go bankrupt because they needed access to healthcare. Yeah. I have friends in, in Germany, in the UK, and Sweden, and they just think that this is absolutely barbaric, what women are going through in the U.S. And I think, what is it? I mean, you're you're fighting on more of a a legal battle. Tell us a little bit about your your role in terms of like how are you involved at the lawyering project? Is it on an individual basis? Do you work with companies? Yeah. So we are an advocacy organization and. What that means is really using the law to whatever extent we can um, mm-hmm. to remove barriers to accessing abortion and other reproductive health care. And that can be in the courts. And that can also be um, in, in providing you know, legal advice to providers and to abortion funds and practical support organizations. Like those are the groups on the ground that are really getting like, you know, they're post 
post Dobbs, um, post mm-hmm. row falling, these are the groups that are really getting people across state lines, making sure people can afford their procedures, making sure people can afford the plane ticket or the hotel room or whatever, whatever is needed. And so mm-hmm. one of the big parts of my job right now, and really since, since Dobbs has been advising providers and advising supporters of abortion access on how they can, um, how they can do their jobs and really just all with an eye toward how do we get people the care they need. Mm -hmm. Um, In the courts, we also have a couple of cases, including one that's, that's that's almost wrapped up in Minnesota, my home state, that I think is a good example of how do you state courts and state constitutions in this landscape where we don't have the federal courts to rely on. We don't have the, a constitutional right to abortion anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Minnesota, we um, we were able to get um, pretty much every restriction on abortion declared unconstitutional um, under the Minnesota state constitution. That included a 24-hour waiting period, mm-hmm. a requirement that a, a teen notify both her parents before having an abortion, which it didn't matter if dad was absent, if parents were abusive, if she didn't even know where one of the parents were, the the only alternative was to go to a judge. So we got that law declared unconstitutional, a law that banned anyone other than physicians from providing abortion care when we know that advanced practice clinicians can do so very safely um, and a number of others. And then the legislature just repealed most of those laws. Um, and, uh, And so you know, using leveraging state courts and state constitutions is a big part of our work. And then also just sort of not giving up in the federal courts and finding ways to to leverage other theories, whether it's freedom of religion, freedom of speech, those sorts of, um, you know, we still have constitutional rights. And, you know, I always say the other side didn't give up for 50 years and we can't give up. And we have to sort of bring that level of, of tenacity to this fight because, yeah, it's, it's, we have to be in it for the, the long haul. Absolutely. I think you have the privilege too of, of being able to do this on the state level. Like you said, I think the average person who wants to make a difference, you know, that you're protesting, you're doing what you can, how can, how can other people, how can listeners help advocate for, for better reproductive rights? And especially for you know, but getting the support that you might need from your employer, especially, I think that's what your employer and your healthcare coverage to make sure that if this does happen to anyone listening or anybody who wants to support their fellow employees, that they have the support that they need financially, emotionally, medically, wherever state they're in. Yeah, I think the most important thing people can do is um, in the employment context is talk Mm -hmm. to your human resources office and ask specifically what reproductive health services are covered. Is abortion covered? Is miscarriage management covered? Is is ART covered? And if not, how can we advocate with the health insurance carrier to get those things covered? And then sort of on the parallel track, what is HR's response when somebody has a pregnancy loss? Do they automatically get, you know, a set number of bereavement days? Do they have to use sick days? Do they have to use other PTO or does it have to be unpaid? Like those are questions that anyone who's interested in this and wants to to advocate for this in the workplace should be asking. Okay. Yeah. I think um, one thing I did find um, online too, if all else fails with companies and you need to take more time off for 
a miscarriage, it is covered under FMLA. Um, and especially depending on where you are in your pregnancy, you could take the, the full 12 week FMLA. If I think if you're around 21 weeks, then it's considered more of labor and delivery. So if, if anybody unfortunately has to go through a late term, um, miscarriage, uh, that, that is basically considered a delivery. Correct. <laughs> that, that I'm not, um, I'm not super familiar with. I do know that not, I do think that not all companies are, um, required to follow FMLA. I think it depends mm-hmm. on the size of the company, but, exactly, um, yeah. but don't quote me on that. <laughs> no, you're right. Yes. Uh, I mean, I know FMLA is that you have to be of your company has to be of a certain size, but that was basically, and all the research I did the first time around when I was just appalled by what I was hearing, um, that was the only thing I found that was like, okay, if you have this, and, and I, you know, wanted to challenge people. I'm like, if your company has policy around miscarriage, if you actually have days off, if there's a response, like you said, I, I would love to hear, cause I think that that's something that people should be sharing. There's a lot that that's been going around in the past couple of years for, uh, paid parental leave and companies comparing what, what one another offers, like how is your company falling within the industry or just within employment at large? Um, I always reference the skim had that Excel spreadsheet that you can actually download and compare your company to different companies. And it was just a crowdsourced thing. Yep. Um, you know, uh, I think maybe it would be, be great to crowdsource the similar thing is, does your company have a response policy for, for miscarriage and what is it? Um, yeah. So, yeah. But Amanda, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast and for talking to me and just for, um, you know, for your articles. I think that was so incredibly brave and they brought me a lot of comfort, a lot of hope, whatever comes, uh, in our, our journey, trying to conceive, um, you know, I really appreciate what you've been brave enough to share to the world. And I really hope that your advocacy, um, work and everything that you're doing is really productive and that you're, um, yeah. And just thank you for everything that you've done. Well, I, I think I told you this over text, but I wrote the articles for you. Um, Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of views out there, but, um, but you were my target audience because I was also on Google at 3am crying alone and was looking for anyone who, whose experience I could relate to. And, um, the fact that you were able to find, find that article and find me <laughs> personally, um, is, um, is really like the hundred percent, the reason why I put myself out there. As an audience of one, I can tell you that it was well worth every word that you put on that page. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I, um, I will be thinking about you in your journey to, to get pregnant again and, and definitely reach out if you ever want to talk about any of that. I definitely will. Yeah. It's a mind fuck. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Everybody likes if you got a problem, you can always call your mama. She's built, she's got, got what everybody likes. If you got a problem, you can always call your mama.